World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Cartographers at the ready. Argentina recently got much, much bigger. A new law lays claim to the country's continental shelf, stretching all the way to Antarctica. That has big resource extraction implications for Argentina and for others. And our obituaries editor looks back on the life of Swami Agnivesh, who freed nearly 200,000 people from indentured servitude in India and taught countless more how to free themselves. But first... Last week, the Nobel Committee awarded its Peace Prize to the World Food Program, the branch of the United Nations that deals with hunger. For its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas. One of those areas is Yemen, where a brutal civil war grinds on, and where the UN says two-thirds of the population needs food aid. The Houthis, Shia rebels who have been fighting a Saudi-led coalition, say the award was an empty gesture. They accused the WFP of having failed, leaving millions of Yemeni people hungry. The UN, in turn, partly blames the Houthis for disrupting their efforts. And the fighting that has hampered food distribution is only intensifying. International observers say that violence in the crucial port city of Hodeida is the worst it's been since a truce was first signed two years ago. A widespread famine is again dangerously close. After almost six years of war, there is no end to crises in Yemen. You've had more than 100,000 people killed, millions have been displaced. Greg Karlstrom is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. There has been the threat of disease for the past few years, a cholera outbreak that began several years ago, and now, of course, COVID-19. The United Nations has warned recently of the looming threat of famine in some parts of the country. On top of all of that, the most recent looming disaster, and an environmental one, is the threat of an oil tanker anchored off of Yemen's coast in the Red Sea, laden with more than a million barrels of crude oil, uh, that both the United Nations and many experts are worried could either leak or explode. How has that entered the story? For the past five years, the ship, known as the Safar, has been anchored off of Yemen's coast in the Red Sea, uh, and it's been slowly corroding in the very salty waters there. No one has been allowed onto the ship to do any repairs. Technicians have been barred from accessing it. Uh, It's in territory controlled by the Houthis, which is the Shia rebel group uh, fighting against the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. Uh, We've seen photos from on board the ship that show uh, leaking pipes, that show corrosion to the tanks that hold the oil. Uh, It's holding a cargo that would be four times larger than that of the Exxon Valdez, which ran aground off the Alaskan coast in the 1980s. Uh, But again, the United Nations has not been allowed to access the ship because the Houthis 
uh, are under the impression that having this essentially floating bomb off the coast of Yemen uh, is a deterrent for any uh, Saudi invasion. And so uh, there is this looming catastrophe where, again, many people are concerned that in the coming uh, months or so, uh, the ship could begin to leak or could explode. It's emblematic of the sort of short-sighted thinking that has turned this war into such an intractable conflict. One for which the Yemeni people have, have been paying for for really some time. I mean, how is the international community responding to this? I mean, th- this has been going on for years. There has been a tragic cycle that has gone on for years where the United Nations and aid agencies will ask for money, will ask for help uh, to deal with all of these acute crises of displacement, disease, poverty, hunger. Ironically, uh, some of the biggest donors are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, both of which, of course, are are leading the military coalition that is fighting against the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, And so on the one hand, they're they're leading the fighting. On the other hand, uh, they have contributed billions of dollars over the past few years for humanitarian aid, for reconstruction, for for other causes inside of Yemen. Uh, And that money does go a long way towards averting the most acute crises. So you have the World Food Program, which provides food aid to about 13 million people in the country. That's almost half the population. So the billions of dollars that are raised each year, again, they do go some way towards uh, alleviating the most uh, acute humanitarian needs in Yemen. But but this stack of crises is is of unimaginable scope. Is that international aid enough to make a dent? Even in past years, it wasn't enough to address all of the problems in Yemen. And it's barely making a dent this year because there is far less money coming in. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which gave about $750 million to the United Nations last year for Yemen, has now given only $300 million. Uh, there has been nothing that came in from the UAE or from Kuwait or Uh, some other big donors. Of course, the world distracted right now by COVID-19. So uh, the financial aid has dropped off. And at the same time, the humanitarian situation uh, in many parts of Yemen has has become worse because of uh, policies enacted by the coalition. They've cut off fuel supplies to Houthi-controlled areas in North Yemen. Uh, They've refused to allow fuel tankers to dock and unload their cargo, uh, which has caused fuel shortages across many parts of North Yemen. And that has, of course, uh, pushed up prices for food and for uh, many basic goods and services. Is is there a chance that Saudi Arabia is not uh, giving the aid that it normally would? Is itself a, a weapon of war trying to, to essentially starve its enemies? Both sides have used the misery of the civilian population in Yemen as, yes, almost a weapon of war. For the Saudi-led coalition, uh, there have been blockades and other restrictions that have limited the flow of basic necessities into the country, uh, which has made life miserable, particularly in Houthi-controlled areas in the north. Uh, on the other hand, you have the Houthis, who are notorious for skimming off uh, aid that is sent into the country, redirecting it to supply their own fighters rather than civilians. Both sides uh, have have pursued these sort of very cynical tactical strategies uh, that have had ruinous consequences for civilians in Yemen. And the backdrop of, of this for, as you say, six years now has, has been this civil war. What, what does that look like at the moment? Well, at this time, about a year ago, there was some guarded optimism that the war might be nearing an end. Uh, last summer, the United Arab Emirates withdrew most of its troops from Yemen. They're a small country, but they were actually the most effective uh, military component of this Saudi-led coalition. And so their departure uh, was a big blow to the Saudis. Uh, Around the same time, Saudi Arabia and the Houthis began uh, indirect negotiations in Oman, which is a neighboring country long known as a a mediator in disputes in the Gulf. Uh, But those talks did not end up producing a deal. 
nor have about six months of negotiations brokered by the United Nations. Uh, they've been holding virtual talks because of the pandemic, but they've been holding those uh, since the spring, and they're hung up on a number of economic and political issues. Uh, the fighting, meanwhile, has become more and more complicated, even as the Saudis uh, are really looking for a face-saving way to get out of the war. But in the, in the meantime, is this looming famine at least one, one aspect of this that, that could be solved? This is a problem that, that Yemen's run into several times before, come out the other side of. Is, is there a simple solution here? It could be solved in the short term the same way it was solved in 2018, the last time the United Nations warned of a looming famine in Yemen, and that would be, uh, again, through contributions from wealthy donor countries. Uh, but even that is at best a, a stopgap measure. It's a, it's a bandage. What the World Food Program has said is that $500 million will get them through the next six months, but it will only be able to provide half rations for millions of people who live in Houthi-controlled areas in North Yemen. So uh, this is not even enough money to give people full food aid for the next six months. To actually address the the underlying causes of this famine, the destruction in the Yemeni agricultural industry, uh, the currency collapse that has made imports uh, unaffordable for the vast majority of people, you would have to address the war itself. You would have to end the conflict, lift the blockade on the country, uh, and bring in a, a huge amount of international aid to try and, and rebuild and not simply uh, deal with the humanitarian impact of the conflict. But uh, six years into the war, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we are any closer to that sort of resolution. Thanks very much for joining us, Greg. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Coastal countries have always claimed a portion of surrounding seas as their territorial waters. For centuries, those were limited to three nautical miles, the distance of a cannon shot. But in recent decades, many countries have pushed further. Last month, Argentina took that trend to its logical conclusion, staking a claim that expanded its territory southward by nearly two million square kilometers, three times the size of France. Quiero reafirmar los legítimos e imprescriptibles derechos de soberanía de la República Argentina sobre las Islas Malvinas. Suddenly, it's a country with more islands and many more penguins and seals. It's something of a diplomatic coup, but it's also a diplomatic minefield. Argentina, the eighth largest country in the world in terms of land mass. David Smith is The Economist's Argentina correspondent has effectively said it's twice its size by extending this continental shelf out into the South Atlantic all the way to Antarctica. So wait a minute, how is it possible then that Argentina could double in size all but overnight? This is a narrative, Jason, that goes back to Argentina's period post a military dictatorship in the late 70s and early 80s. When Argentina returned to democracy, they went to the UN and said, we believe that our continental shelf 
our freedom to move out beyond the norm across our world of 200 nautical miles should be dictated by the depth of the sea below. And if it's more shallow than 2,500 metres, this was the argument they made to the Law of Sea Convention, then we believe we should be able to extend our uh, territorial waters. In 2016, after 30 years of negotiations, the UN came back and agreed with Argentina that they could extend their territorial waters because the continental shelf fell within that shallowness. And so in 2016, we we had a very different government in Argentina, a more outward-looking conservative government under Mauricio Macri. They celebrated a win-win for Argentina, but they didn't act upon it. And now the government that came to power last year has said, no, we want to expand Argentina and lay claim to everything from the Tropic of Capricorn to the South Pole, including Antarctica, and of course, including the Malvinas, the Falkland Islands, run by the British. But what is the actual motivation here? What use is claiming that territory? This is a diplomatic win for Argentina, which is quite rare in the recent history of this country. The question is now, what do they do with it? One can see diplomatically where they want to go on this. They want to say, in effect, that the Falklands, the Malvinas, should belong to them. And at the same time, I think they want to lay claim to the fishing potential, some of the richest fishing grounds in the world. And there is potential in the South Atlantic for oil and gas. So I think there's a double-edged nature to what Argentina's doing here. One is what they'd like to make a diplomatic process over the the Malvinas, the Falkland Islands. And the other one is the, the resources issue, what may be beneath those waters and may be the source of future wealth. But surely these claims and evident intentions are going to raise some international questions. I mean, what have other countries said about these claims? The British are opposed to what Argentina has done and will, I'm sure, be arguing that there is no way that they can accept a move on the Malvinas, the Falkland Islands. The other one, apart from the Falklands that's important, is Antarctica. There, Argentina is one of the original signatories of an agreement going back decades now, and they ratified every single year, and it has the lead players, the United States, Russia, uh, Britain, even China's come on board, which basically makes Antarctica a totally neutral free zone to be used only by all of the signatories for peaceful purposes. Well, there you have an area that Argentina knows it has to tread very carefully. I have to share with you that that one of the things that I, I do see quite clearly is that how is Argentina having it doubled its size, made itself seeking territory that I think is seven times the size of Great Britain? How do they possibly go about policing this when, for example, their navy is very small, very under-resourced, particularly in this period of economic uncertainty and recession in this country. How do they possibly police it? So given all of that, I mean, is this anything more than just an, an on-paper diplomatic win for Argentina? Oh, it's tempting to see it, Jason, as, as purely a diplomatic manoeuvre, really leading to not very much. I think the one issue that could come out of this is potential conversation engagement across the many divides of the South Atlantic about the exploitation of resources, uh, those fishing grounds, oil and gas, minerals, 
There, I think, there is a potential for this being a moment which the UN, by the way, and Secretary General a few years ago had suggested to all sides, let's put together a conversation with the private sector, for example, about how best we exploit the, the resources of the South Atlantic and Antarctica for the betterment of humanity, for everyone. And there, I think, may lie a window for a conversation at long last about uh, what we do with this remarkable territory at the end of the world. Thanks very much for your time, David. Thank you for having me. For more analysis from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. For the best introductory offer wherever you are, go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. You can find that link in the show notes. In Hinduism, the life stage of sunyaza, or renunciation, is traditionally the last. The elderly lay aside their material possessions and take up a spiritual existence, perhaps in the forest or the hills. But some choose to go through it much earlier in life. At the moment when Swami Agnivesh took his title of Swami, he seemed bound on a completely different course. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. He was in Calcutta teaching management studies. He was also putting in stints as a lawyer. A good career and a comfortable life as far as it seemed. But he was already getting interested in a life of renunciation, which is the Swami's life, the life of a monk. He had quite a strong feeling that he ought to dedicate his life to serving others. He was not entirely sure what his mission would be, but he knew what his philosophy was, and he was ready for a complete change of course. He decided to go to Haryana state in northern India. Haryana and Punjab were the two main centers for bonded labor, which is endemic really in India. It comes about when poor people need money for medicines or for dowries and have none, so they must borrow it from a local moneylender who usually charges such high rates of interest that they can never pay this back. And rather than get into payments in money, they give over their services and they become bonded laborers. They are, in fact, slaves to the moneylender. Tiny fingers producing luxury carpets, many destined for the British market. They're India's carpet children, working to repay debts incurred by their hopelessly poor parents. Most of these bonded laborers were Dalits, the lowest caste of all the people in Indian society who were always stepped on, crushed, and made to do the dirtiest and most objectionable jobs. One of the boys we found here was just six years old, torn from his family to work 12 hours a day. From many of the children, stories of cruelty and beatings. And he simply decided he had to do something to help them. In 1981, he actually set up the Bonded Labour Liberation Front. And this would work by raising money. And when it had raised enough money, it would go and buy the freedom of as many workers as it could manage. And meanwhile, he would also lecture 
the workers on what their rights were because there were in fact laws against bonded labour, but it was not enforced. And he would go rather surreptitiously, which seems a contradiction because he was a very obvious bright figure in his orange turban and orange robes and tell them that they had a right to demand better from their employers. In the end, he rescued about 178,000 workers from bondage, of which 26,000 or so were children. It is interesting that he was sometimes attacked by other religious figures as being too political and radical. He saw political action as absolutely part of his spiritual duty. He saw no distinction between them. But he became an important political figure in India because he was, although a devout Hindu, absolutely opposed to everything that was going on in the name of Hinduism in the Hindutva movement, which was, of course, championed by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the idea that India should become a Hindu homeland and should be characterised by Hinduism. The blurring, if you like, of Indian nationalism with Hinduism, which, to his mind, was a complete betrayal of the inclusiveness and the sacred nature of Hinduism, its diversity and its embrace of all faiths and all people. He remained at the head of his bonded labour liberation front until the end of his life because there was such a lot still to do in it. In fact, it was going to be a never-ending job. And he worried very much that there was no one he could see to take on his work to try and eradicate this problem in India. But he might have taken a little bit of heart from the former bonded workers who came to his funeral There were quite a number of them, and they spoke rather shyly but very movingly of how they had been rescued from their backbreaking work and their servitude. They, at least, had very much appreciated how he had not decided to take his monkish practices up into the mountains or into the forest to live remotely. He had decided instead that his spiritual life was to be spent in the service of the poor, where they were in the heat and the pain and the dust. Anne Rowe on Swami Agnavesh, who's died aged 80. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. 
Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.